For WMRA News, I'm Kimberly Daggy. Opponents of the Mountain Valley Pipeline file a petition in federal court to try to stop the natural gas project. Workers may have found the time capsule in the base of the Lee statue in Richmond. Some gun rights activists want to make it easier to carry concealed weapons in the Commonwealth. And the first of two exit interviews with outgoing Governor Ralph Northam. This is the WMRA Daily for Tuesday, December 27th. Opponents of the Mountain Valley Pipeline filed a petition last week with a federal appeals court to try to stop the natural gas project. The Roanoke Times reports that environmental and community groups want the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to review a decision earlier this month by Virginia's Water Control Board to allow the pipeline to cross streams and wetlands. The Sierra Club was among the groups that say Mountain Valley should not be allowed to continue given its past track record of violating erosion and sediment regulations in southwest Virginia. Mountain Valley said most of the problems were caused by heavy rain in 2018 and have since been corrected. The pipeline's planned 300-mile route begins in West Virginia and runs through Virginia with a proposed extension into North Carolina. Workers at the former site of the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in Richmond may have found the time capsule reported to have been installed in the statue's base. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reports the second capsule closely matches the copper container described by newspapers when the cornerstone with the capsule was laid in 1887. The monument itself was completed in 1890. The capsule is believed to contain about 60 items mostly related to the Confederacy. Governor Ralph Northam tweeted photos of the capsule but said it would not be opened on Monday. Workers found a different time capsule earlier in December, which contained an 1875 almanac, a coin, two books, and a photograph inside an envelope. Those were damaged by water and are currently being preserved. Some gun rights supporters want to make it easier to obtain a permit to carry a concealed weapon in the Commonwealth. From Virginia Public Radio, Michael Pope reports. Getting a concealed carry permit should be free, and lawmakers should take action to eliminate the current fee, according to Delegate-elect Tim Anderson of Virginia Beach. Also, people who are caught carrying a gun without a concealed carry permit should be guilty of a civil penalty rather than a misdemeanor. The idea is to make it easier for people to get a concealed handgun permit. Once you have it, You can have the gun anywhere you want. You can have it in your pants, you can have it in your car, you can have it anywhere you want, but make it easier on people. The proposal to eliminate the fee for a concealed carry permit strikes some people working against gun violence as counterproductive. I don't want my taxpayer dollars paying for his permit. Lori Haas at the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence says more training should be required. Think about what we require of a law enforcement officer to carry a firearm in public. It's hundreds of hours of training, but we're saying that you or I can take a 45-minute in-person class where the guy looks at you and says, this is the gun, this is the trigger, this is the holster. Now you're equipped to go out and carry in public. I think it makes zero sense. Even if the new Republican majority in the House of Delegates passes those gun bills introduced by Tim Anderson, they'll still need to get through a Senate controlled by Democrats, including committees that are stacked to favor the Senate majority. Uh, Michael Pope. 
A new report shows black youths in Virginia more than twice as likely to be referred to the state's juvenile justice system compared to their white peers. The Washington Post reports that the review was conducted by the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Commission and sent to the governor of Virginia and the General Assembly. The analysis also found that many teens in the state fail to get quality legal representation. They found that recidivism is high because rehabilitation programs are ineffective. And they also found that officials are paying for facilities where 70% of beds are unoccupied. With the number of teens in statewide programs and detention centers falling more than 70% over the past decade, the report recommends closing Virginia's last juvenile prison and replacing it with smaller facilities across the Commonwealth. The change would allow teens to be closer to their parents and provide more space for treatment. The report did offer some good news. It found that a plan put in place by statewide lawmakers in 2016 has reduced the number of teens in the system and cut recidivism rates for low-risk offenders. While campaigning for governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin vowed to fire all the members of Virginia's parole board and appoint new people. Now lawmakers are also debating some changes to how the board operates. Once again, Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope reports. The Virginia Parole Board operates largely in secret. The votes cast by its members are not part of the public record, and state law actually shields those votes from being released. Senator David Suderlein is a Republican from Roanoke, and he says members of the Parole Board make important decisions on public safety. And it's important that Virginians know who's taking those votes and how they're taking them in the same way they get to know who's passing the laws to begin with and who's enforcing those laws. Critics of the proposed bill say members of the board communicate their decisions as one voice instead of individual opinions. And if their individual votes were known, individual members might be targeted and possibly influenced or intimidated. Megan Ryan is executive director at the Virginia Coalition for Open Government. Judges, prosecutors, police officers, boards of supervisors, School boards, they all make decisions that are unpopular and that some people could use that information to target them. And the answer there is to deal with that behavior rather than to say that for some reason we need to not have people be individually accountable. Previous attempts to pass a bill making parole board votes public have passed the Senate but have been stopped in the House. Senator Suderlein is hopeful that now that Republicans will be in control of the House, his bill might get to the governor's desk. I'm Michael Pope. Virginia's two U.S. senators have told the Virginia Supreme Court that its proposed map for Virginia's congressional districts puts, quote, the heavy weight of change on Virginia's three female representatives. The court's proposed map would move Abigail Spanberger's 7th district from its base in the Richmond suburbs to northern Virginia. Virginia's coastal 2nd district, represented by Elaine Luria, would lose its portion of Norfolk and gain part of Chesapeake. Jennifer Wexton's 10th district in northern Virginia would stretch from Albemarle County through Fauquier to Loudoun County. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that Senators Mark Warner and Tim Kaine wrote in a letter to the court, quote, Although the proposed map makes some changes to each of Virginia's 11 congressional districts, the most impactful geographical changes occur in the three districts currently represented by women. Virginia's Supreme Court is redrawing the maps after Virginia's new redistricting commission reached an impasse along partisan lines. 
Governor Ralph Northam's term will end in a few days. When the pediatric neurologist campaigned for the job, little did he know that he'd spend more than half of his term navigating a global pandemic. Also with Virginia Public Radio, Jad Khalil spoke with Northam before the last Omicron-fueled surge to discuss the Commonwealth's response to COVID-19. I wanted to ask you about your response to the coronavirus pandemic first. Do you remember when you first heard about it and when you first became worried about it being a pandemic? Our first case was on March the 7th of 2020. And and I think a lot of people thought, well, this would be, you know, just like a, a flu or, you know, that it would run its course and then, then move on. But it just, it kind of mushroomed. And initially the challenge was with PPE. And then we had the testing, you know, we had a shortage of the reagents and the nasal swabs and making sure that everybody had access to, to testing. So we worked through that. So it's kind of like learning as you go. And if you look at the numbers, while while we've had, you know, certainly every death is significant in Virginia, but compared to other states, our, the number of deaths, the number of people in the hospitals are, are much lower. So I, I think by following the science and the, the data and, you know, having good open line of communication with Virginians, uh, we're in a much better place than a lot of other states are. How do you think your work as a doctor influenced the way that you responded? And what did you learn about health versus public health? Sometimes the news that I have to give patients and especially their families is, is not good news, but, but I've always learned that people can handle the truth. That's really what I've tried to do as, you know, as governor, but I always thought it was really important to make sure that people had access to, to accurate uh, and, and adequate information, and so that's what we really tried to strive to do. You know, there's a few kind of mandates and actions that you took. Do you think that you could have gone further with some of those? I'm thinking about the state worker mandate having a bit more teeth or extending the length of indoor mask mandates. What do you think about what you could have done there? You know, on one end of the spectrum, there are people that, you know, are very worried about it and and don't want to go outside afraid that they'll, you know, contract the virus. And there's the other end of the spectrum that they just don't pay any mind to it. I understand a little bit about human nature, and so I've tried to make my decisions to keep people as healthy and as safe as we can. But, you know, if you go too far, people just, you know, say, no, we're not doing that. And so I've tried to to work with Virginians and and do the things that I thought would keep them the safest. You know, every death affects me and and every person that that dies, every person that loses their life, that's, that's someone's family member. It might be their mom, their dad, their grandmother, might be their child. Uh, I look at the numbers every day, and, and, and it's avoidable, and, and that, that bothers me, and that's, that's why I've really tried hard to encourage people to, you know, to wear masks and, and to take this seriously and, and to, to get vaccinated. Do you think that being a governor is going to help you be a, be a doctor? Like, how, how do you think that might kind of play into this? That's a great question, and, you know, I've always tried to treat all people the same when they came into my office and when they were sick. But I think that what being governor has done is it really has opened my eyes up to, you know, a lot of the challenges that we have and and to, you know, one of the things that I want to do when I leave, you know, people ask what my legacy is, but I, I think my legacy is to be determined and my, I think my my greatest accomplishments are, are in the future and, and those are making sure that all of our children have access to education uh, and then also to, to deal with the disparities that continue to exist. If one looks at the statistics with uh, maternal and neonatal morbidity and mortality, we still have a lot of work to do. So, you know, so what I've learned as a governor, 
I think will help me to better take care of patients uh, when I leave here. Were you seeing patients when you were lieutenant governor? When was the last time you were, uh, you were seeing folks? <laughs> lieutenant governor is on paper at least a part-time job, so I was seeing patients as lieutenant governor, but I, I often kind of kid with people. It's like, how would you like to be my first patient after five years? So hopefully there'll be some takers. Tomorrow, Khalil talks with the governor about a revelation that almost ended his term just a year after it began. For WMRA News, I'm Kimberly Daggy. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.